Well, as we get started, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49 tonight, first part of Isaiah chapter 49. Before we look at that, I want to, first of all, thank Michael Garreau for jumping in last week. He really had to do that last minute step in, and I know that those of you who were here were blessed. Um, it's, it's a tremendous thing to work together with men who want to serve the Lord and have that have the Lord's hand upon them to speak the Word of God. So, again, I'm very thankful for his opportunity to do that, thankful that he covered for me, uh, and I just want to thank him publicly. Isaiah chapter 49 <clears throat> it starts off with this statement. It says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he has named me. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. We'll stop at that particular point. Um, when we started this study, we said that the reason we're going through it, it's a messianic poem. There is a lot we could get out of these last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. But the key thing we want to get out of it is what it teaches us concerning the Messiah. Who he is. What he is. This is one of the great servant passages from that section. I'm going to start off by saying this, and then I'll do this real quickly. I believe that there are three different sections, three different stanzas to this hymn. There's a hymn here of, of praise to the concerning the, the uh, servant of Jehovah. All three refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a problem in the first one uh, that I need to at least mention. It says, my servant Israel. Right, he calls him my servant Israel. When we, in order to interpret that, we almost have to make it still that it's the Lord, and that's not an un, um, it's not an uncommon way for God to speak concerning the Lord from the Old Testament. You remember? Well, you don't. Anyway, in chapter five of the book of Isaiah, we didn't go there, so you won't remember. But anyway, in chapter five of the book of Isaiah, God complains to Israel about their situation, about how they have sinned. Against God, it starts off with this, that I'm going to sing a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. And he tells how they have failed in fulfilling the purpose of God. Later on in that hymn, in that section, he identifies it, says that Israel is my vine. So that that is identified with that. But they failed in that. Now, the book of John depends a lot on the book of Isaiah. John does not quote. He just doesn't quote. He doesn't do that. What he does is he absorbs and puts it back out. And so if you, if you go through the book of John, there's an awful lot of things that are just understood because of what was said in the book of Isaiah. At the end of his ministry, in the last, the last of his I am statements is this. I am the true vine. And what he does is he identifies himself with what Isaiah said Israel was. So that in a real sense, in the accomplishing of the purpose of God, Israel is finally reduced to a single person. Now, we could, we could study that out, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, just to say that those, that, that is where we're going in this. So I'm, going to, I'm not going to go any further with that, but just in this section. He's not talking about Israel as a nation you get into all kinds of problems in interpretation. If you go that way, he's speaking about his servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray, and then we'll. And there's a second thing I want to say, but I'm, I think I should pray here. I'll forget to do it, and that would be very bad. All right, so let's commit our time to the Lord. While we come to you, we give you thanks for your word. We give to you thanks for the way in which your word prepares us to live, for the thoughtfulness of that word, for the foresight of that word. And we're coming and asking you tonight to work by your spirit in us as we think about your word, to understand it and to be prepared to live for your glory. And we look to you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Early on in our study of Isaiah, we said this about that there's different levels of application of the book. When Isaiah spoke, there has to be a reason he spoke to the people of his own day. Prophecy can't be completely out ahead. It has to have something to say to the people, so there's a way we have to interpret it with regards to the era in which Isaiah lived. There is another sense in which the prophecy addresses a situation 150 years after Isaiah when the people of God were in captivity and God wanted to speak to them. There is another sense in which the prophecy of Isaiah helps the people of the time of the Lord to understand who He is. And then there is another way in which the book of Isaiah is important for us. So there's all those areas of interpretation. But there is one area of interpretation, one area of application, I should say, which that doesn't consider. And I want to stop for just a moment tonight before we actually look at this passage to think about that. And that is the application of the book of Isaiah to the person of Jesus himself. I want to say that for a reason, because we're just finishing Christmas. We, We think about the incarnation. We think about that miraculous event in which God becomes a man without stopping being God, but he becomes a man. The humanity of Jesus Christ is very difficult to think through. To say that when I had to give the Christmas message, I find Christmas in a sense disturbing, not that it's disturbing since I don't like it. It's just very hard to grasp that there is a child, a baby, a helpless baby sitting there who is God. And then we know that eventually he I like him grown up better. I like Jesus to be a grown-up man, and I can I can understand this this direct. At least I feel like I can understand it better. But between that cradle and that man, something has to happen. How did the man Christ Jesus, who is in the cradle, and he's not working out sermons in that cradle, right? Let's get that clear. He's a baby, just like I was a baby once, and just like you were a baby once. If he is different than I am, the whole ministry of being a priest fails completely. His ability to save me is destroyed. He has to be one of us. But between that event and this event, he had to grow up. And in that process of growing, he had to find out as a man who he was. He had to learn the way he was to go. He had to be prepared for the events of life. How is it that he was prepared for that? Well, again, there is no description in the Word of God of how we get from here to here. 
right? The trip from the, cro- the cradle to Jesus appearing to be baptized only has one event in it, all right? And it just tells us that at one point when he's about 12 years old, he, he debates with some men at the temple. But it doesn't tell us. It tells us he did grow, but it doesn't tell us how he grew. So I know that when I step out here and say, this is what I believe happened, okay, I'm going out in a little bit of a, you know, this is dangerous ground to say that this is the way it happened. But if he's going to be like me, how did it have to happen? What do I have to enable me to understand who I am on this earth and what I ought to do and be? Well, I have two things that take me from where I was, ignorant concerning God, to an understanding. And they are, number one, the Word of God, and number two, the Spirit of God. If Jesus is one of us, he had to grow into an understanding of who he was by consideration of the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit of God to teach him that. I don't suppose that there's many in the room that haven't had the experience where the Spirit of God teaches you the Word of God, where all of a sudden you are seeing what you never saw before. And you are conscious that this time God is making this real. It was always real. He's not changing the Word of God. He's just opening up your mind to grasp it and, to, to, and, it, and it changes you and enables you to take a stand, to be in a place. All right? In the process, Jesus had to go through this. And I think that's an interesting sidelight to the reason for the Old Testament. I used to teach Old Testament. I said, why was the Old Testament given? And I've always taught it with regards to why he gave it to us. But another way to look at that is this is a message to his son when he's on this earth as to who he is and what he has to do. That he had to grow into an understanding of up by listening to it, by letting the Spirit of God teach him, and being, I won't say changed, because he doesn't have to overcome sin, but being shaped by that experience. And I was thinking about that this afternoon, going through this, and I thought, in a real sense, that's what it meant for the Lord that the Lord, again, this is a quote from Old Testament, or a paraphrase, I'll say, from the Old Testament, says, it's the Lord. He it is that goes before you. He will not fail you or forsake you. He's already gone before us. What does it mean that the Lord has gone before us? Well, there's lots of different aspects of it, but here's one of them. In this word, we have all the information we need to face whatever he knows is out ahead. And for his son, he gave all the information that was necessary, not only to know who he was, but to face what he would face. So as we think through the section tonight, again, it's, it has to do with us because he starts off, as we read at the very beginning, he starts off by a cry from the Lord to listen to the ends of the earth. The central section of the book of Isaiah, or for this section of Isaiah, focuses on, on the redemption that God makes possible for the entire earth. 
when we're speaking about the Lord, the focus of the attention on the Lord during this in this section is on the cross and what happened in those last weeks as he finished up his ministry. See that tonight? It climaxes again. It makes its peak in chapter 53 in a description of the cross. But he's already moving towards that. They go round and round, and here he begins honing in on this. That's important for us, but it was also important for the Lord. That's how he learned. I believe personally that when Jesus sat down with his or talked to those men on the road to Emmaus and told them all the things concerning himself in the Scripture, that was the result of his Bible study, not his intuitive knowledge. That is the result of him being there, listening to what it says. So what does it say? So as we think about it again, this has application to us, but I just thought that might, might make us look at it a little bit differently. That there was a day, and I, I was trying to imagine it this afternoon, a day, because there would have been a day when Jesus heard this for the first time. And there would have been, because he was a member of a synagogue, they all went to synagogue, and in synagogue they had systematic reading of the Scripture. They just went through it over and over and over again. So that by the time you grew up, you had heard it again and again and again, because they just kept repeating through it and just reading through. He had become very familiar with the book of Isaiah. When he introduces his ministry, we'll be in that later on when we get to that section of the book of Isaiah says he took the scroll and immediately turned. He knew that he knew that book. He was given the scroll of Isaiah, but he turned right to this place. He wasn't there. That's not where they were reading that day, but he moved to it, not to this place, but to the place where it speaks about the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He knows this book because he studied it. But it was the way his father went before him to prepare everything. That's going to be important because some questions have come up along the way concerning what it says. Three sections <clears throat> in each section. They're very simple, actually, to, to go through because each section tells us something about what God has called Jesus to be, the, son, the servant to be. And then it finishes with an assurance that it will be finished. This is what I've called you to be, and it will be completed. And in typical Hebrew fashion, it builds on itself. Let's look at that. The first section... <clears throat> And I'm going to read again, beginning in verse 1. I'll read all the way down through verse 4. That is the first section. All right? Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you people from, the, from afar. That's us. All right? That's us. As he's talking about the people beyond Israel. He's talking about the people at the ends of the earth. And from that perspective, from our perspective, we live in the ends of the earth. We are those ones from way out there. So it's ours to pay attention. Here's what he says, the Lord, as Jehovah, called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother, he named me. All right, and again, this is, just think of this in terms of the New Testament. This is 800 years before the New Testament's written. 800 years before these events, all right? Jesus was named from the beginning by his father. All right, people get named that way. All right? Anyway, but then we're just going to keep going there. Uh, and he has made my mouth. He says two things about him. How he's going to minister. He's going to minister by his word. He's going to minister by his actions. Those, there's two pictures here. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. When it says in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, what he's saying there is he has his hand around me in such a way you can't get to him. All right. Like I've got, I got some money in my, my hand and I'm not going to let you have it. I'm going to grip it. And that's the kind of picture. He's concealed me there. He's held me on the inside. I am, I am in his hand. It's a, it's a tes- testimony to his complete confidence in his father. He's also made me a select arrow. And the first one he says, I, he's made my tongue or made my words like a sharp sword, but he has made me a, an arrow and that's a tool to get his work done. And he has hidden me. It's again, same picture. It's hidden me in his quiver. And he said, and here's the first statement concerning who he is. He said, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. You are my servant Israel. And here's the first thing. Imagine the Lord reading that. That's what his calling is. Now, you remember that he knows all the rest of this. Think about that from the Lord's perspective. He already knows because his mother must have told him that, of what took place when the angel appeared and a name was given. What would that have meant to the Lord when he reads that? And he finds out, oh, what's it say concerning the servant? It says this, that he called me from the womb, which he had, from the body of my mother, he named me, right? From the start, his name was upon me, right? Now, here's who I am. Here's who I am. I have a ministry. Here's what two-side ministry. I have to speak for him and I have to serve him. But here's what I'm going to do as I get there. Here's my job in life is to glorify my father. That's what it says there. In whom I will show my glory. I'm going to bring that to pass. Now think about that with regards to the Lord too. Because remember, this all focuses on the cross. We're going to see that in just a moment. It comes back to the cross. Where is it that the glory of God was shown? Where is it the glory of God was shown? We've been over that many times. You want to see the greatness of the God that we serve? You go to the cross. That is the glory that belongs to him. Because at that point, we find out what it means that God is love. That is his greatness. That is not, is not to say that his power isn't great and his holiness isn't great. And all these other things aren't great. But what makes him supremely great from the perspective, this is what the Lord said, this is it, times come for God to be glorified, right? And what's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. And how has the Lord responded to this word that you will glorify my name? Well, you get to that, that section of the cross. Think about the Lord that we serve. Who's there. I've come to this place. We've, we've gone over this many times. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is the hour I came to. We're going to see that in a moment. This is the hour. This is my purpose of being here. How do I know that? It's said so in the Old Testament. And it's his purpose I be here. And what's he do? This is why he's so different than we are so often in our response to the word of God. He's given himself to it. Father, glorify your name. That's what you chose me for. And that's what I'm going to accomplish. Now, there are two ways in which Jesus glorifies the Father. There are two ways that it can be looked at. Number one, what he does on the cross. That is in providing salvation. 
in the demonstration of what God is like when Jesus Christ took sin to himself, my sin, your sin, everybody's sin to himself, and paid the price, he is showing the greatness of who God is. But there is a second stage to all of that. There will come a day in the future when all of the people who have trusted him will be gathered together, and he will complete a work in us. And the power of his death, not only the cleansing power of his death, but the power of his life will be so manifested in a group of people that everybody will say, God is great. That's what I, we're, we're in that in Ephesians. We started in it this morning. That we might in the end be to the praise of the glory of his grace. You're going to glorify me by going to that cross. You're going to do that. But the result of that is going to be human beings who are ruined, reshaped to look like God. It's tremendous. Right? So that's what, that's what his ministry is. Want to know who, the, who Jesus Christ is? That's who he is, the one who paid the price so that I not only be cleansed from sin, but I could be reshaped. In one day, that's the picture of, of Ephesians. We went over that last year with it, or two years ago with regards to Ephesians. The picture of Ephesians is people sitting there saying, that's a miracle that you could take that and turn it into this. Now, the passage, this is why I wanted to, to note um, that first part. Because in verse 4 it says this. This concerns a lot of people. But I said I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And a question comes up, could the servant, could Jesus Christ have ever said that? And I would say, no, I don't know that in a real sense he could have, would have said it directly. But I can guarantee, I can almost guarantee you, he was tempted to say that. He comes very close to that at times. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long am I going to put up with you? How long? I'm trying to teach a certain thing. I can't imagine what it must have been. He's, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to glorify God by showing what the love of God is like. And as he is at the table with his disciples, an argument erupts as to which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine what that would have meant to the heart of a teacher to realize it in, <laughs> I'm almost finished with my teaching here. And they don't get it. They are still fighting about that. In just a few minutes, he's going to ask this question. As it's in the book of John. He's going to say, have I been so long with you? And you don't get it yet. After he leaves that session... He will go to a place to pray. And he will ask his good friends to pray with him. Not to pray with him, to stand with him. To just be there. To be a support to him. You know what they did? They fell asleep. He is at the most important hour of his entire life. He has given himself to these people. And what is the response? They're falling asleep. Before the night's over, every one of them will desert him. Two will try to stick with him, John and, and Peter. But Jesus will have the experience before that night is over in earshot. And for this to happen in earshot, 
The distance between Jesus and Peter can't be any further than about halfway across this auditorium. It had to be right there. And he hears his primary student, Peter, say, I never knew the man. I believe at that point, and it's not the end, we'll talk about some more later on, a person could say, what's the point? I've poured into, I've gone with all that. Now, did the Lord say that? I don't think so. Because I think he was prepared. Because God had already written this in the word. That temptation is going to be there. But let's finish out that section. It says this, but I've said... I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. The justice due me. Now that's the reason I don't believe you can identify this with Israel. Because justice means that God will do the right thing with regards to them, and Israel being forever sinful if he does the right thing for them. They need mercy. They don't need justice. But here he's talking about one who says, you know what? The justice, the right thing with respect to the way I have served my father will come to pass because I'm going to trust myself to him. Right? That's what he is saying there. And my reward is with my God. The assurance is there. Jesus was going to need this. There would come a time when I believe in those last days of ministry, he would need to know that God was going to bring it all through. But that's not the end of the section. So he, he returns to it again. That's the first thing. He is the one who will glorify God. Verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. And that's why the Lord came. He came unto his own. It says in the book of John, he came unto his own. His own are the people of Israel. All right? It says, for I am honored in his sight, in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. Now, again, that's, that's an important word for him. Because he has the same devil against him as you and I have against us. Now, I see one of the great attacks of the devil is this, to get you to believe that there is a wall between you and God. At the point at which you feel alienated from God, and stop trusting in what, don't take advantage of what is there to keep you close to God, you're in trouble. Now, here's a prophecy. See, he says, says, I've been called to bring back Israel because I am, that's what it says. Imagine the Lord reading that, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, that is in the sight of Jehovah, and my God is my strength. That will be important because of what comes next. Okay, verse 6, he says this, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my, my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. It's too small. The ministry is not big enough. The ministry that the Lord would have on this earth, it was to the Jews first. He did come there, but he knew right from the beginning that it was bigger than that because he had read it. That's why the Lord can almost directly quote that in one of his I am statements, right? I am. He does not say it the way you might think he would say it if it wasn't 
already written here. I am the light of the Israelites. I am the light to the Jews. Now, what's he say? I am the light of the world. How does he know he's the light of the world? God told him he was the light to the world. It's not, it's not enough just to bring back Israel. I'm going to make you a light to all the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again, I'm very grateful for that. Being one who lives a long way from Israel, the end of the earth, and it reached there because God made Jesus a light to all the nations, and I happen to be part of that. And you're a part of that. So the light reaches us. All right? And he goes on to speak because he's preparing his son Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One. That, when that title comes together, we've already seen this earlier, that is the, in a sense, is the complete picture. When he puts all three of those together, he does that quite a bit. He's, he's been, here I am. This is God as he is. And he says he's going to speak to him. He says, I want to speak to, and we want to go to the cross here and think about it, the night before the cross to the despised one to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Here's a word to you at that particular time. I chose you to be the light to the nations. What's going to happen on that night? Well, first, he's the despised one, right? You can't read through the Gospels to and miss the fact that the religious leaders of his day who tried him the night before did not think much of him. They counted themselves vastly superior people. They understood him to be an ignorant man who was untrained and who was nothing but a troublemaker. They closed their eyes to the powerful works that he did. They closed their ears to the clear teaching which came right from that Old Testament that they professed to to be committed to. And they despised him. And he was tried, and he was convicted by that group of men. The next morning had to be one of the loneliest moments. I can't imagine that moment. His disciples are gone. They're hiding someplace. The last word he heard from any of his disciples was that they, he didn't, they didn't want having to do with him. I don't, want any, I don't know him. And then he appears in front of the people that he came to save. The nation which six days before had brought him into this into this city as the king. The prophecy was fulfilled. He was presented to them as king. And what is their response? Well, you know the response. Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him to the lowest death that there was to be brought to pass on a human being. Do it to him. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One to the despised one. Here He's speaking to the Lord. I wonder what the Lord thought of that when He read it, to the despised one. He was going to be despised. To the one who's abhorred by the nations. And then He became a servant of the rulers. Because between Pontius Pilate, who ruled in Jerusalem, and the religious rulers, you know what they did to Him? 
they told him to take up a cross. They are in control, and he served them. He becomes their servant. He does what they tell him to do. And he walked away with a cross. That's what he's going to go through in order to prepare him. His father wants to say something else to him. Here's something to know. Here's what else to know. Kings will see. They're going to see what happened. And they will arise. Now, the thought of a king arising here is the thought of a king doing homage. A king acknowledging someone as being important. When he came in, king sat on the throne. They don't stand up for anybody. You do the standing, they do the sitting. Because they are the superior one. But he says, kings will rise concerning because of you. Princes will bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. It will work. It's, gonna, it's going to happen. You're gonna, it's going to be successful. You will be abhorred. You will be despised. You will have to serve the rulers of this earth. But it's going to win in the end. We're going to work through in the end. Now that brings us to the last one. So first of all, he is the one who is going to glorify God. And the second one is what? He is the one who is the light to the nations. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I've answered you. Again, he's at the cross. And let me just note that that favorable time, the word, the vocabulary there comes from the law in which it talks about the year of Jubilee. year of Jubilee was the 50th year in their cycle of things, and it was the year when everything was put right and everybody was allowed to go back Slaves were set free. Everything. It was a great year. It's a jubilee because, okay, those that have been or have had a bad run of it, everything is straightened out. It's sorted out. And he uses that language. He says in the in the in the day in the uh, in the favorable time. I've answered you. And in the day of salvation, again following that same thought, I've helped you. And I will keep you, and here's what else he says, and I will give you as a covenant for the people. I'm going to give you as a covenant for the people. That's what the Lord says to him. Now, you know how that works out. He's not just going to make a covenant with God. He's going to be given as the covenant with God. Again, there's no New Testament. This is this echoes the New Testament. Remember, it's 800 years before that. The Lord comes down to that last meal with his disciples Remember, in the upper room. While all those other things are going on, he says this. He takes a cup, right? And he presents it to them. And he says, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant. The new agreement, the new the new relationship with with God, but it's it's going to be I'm going to bring it to pass. And what you have to do is you have to drink this, you have to drink this, you have to become a partaker of this. But there is a covenant established. God says in that at year I'm, in that favorable year. That's what it is for us. That was a favorable year. That was the most important period of time in your experience and my experience because the Lord did it. 
He did all the things he was asked to be. He was asked to glorify God and go to the cross. He was asked to be a light to the nations, and he's going to be that light to the nations because of that cross. He's going to become the covenant, and he knows what that means. I'm going to make you a covenant to people to restore the land and to make them inherit desolate heritages. And then from that point on to the end of the chapter, he goes to the third part of it. In the first part, he just assured him that when you're under the temptation, commit yourself to the Lord. That's He's telling him that's what to do. Count on the fact that I am the God your strength. When you get to the place where you despise, know this, that you will be despised, but you will also be honored. It goes back to that thought of, of Philippians chapter 2, that he gave himself, but what? For this reason, God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at his name, what? Every knee will bow. Then the third part of it that he assures him here is not only that, that there will come a time when he'll be exalted, but then he's going to describe, I'll just read it here, it's in symbolic language. It is in, it's in picturesque language. But he's speaking about the fact that that, that salvation which he's going to win is going to be extended to people. They are actually going to be blessed. They are going to be set free. Listen to it. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourself. Now, the thought there is that they're hiding darkness. They don't know which way to go, and they just want to stay out of trouble. But he said, now come on out. Come on out. It's safe. Along the roads, they will feed. And their pasture will be on a bare heights. And that, that thought of being on the bare heights, um, it, it often was good grass, but it's out in the wide open. It's in places where there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to duck in. But you don't need a place to hide. You don't need a place to duck in. Because it's a blessed place. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and he will guide them to the springs of water i will make my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up that's way back to the chapter 40 every mountain and hill be exalted or be raised up and anyway he's gonna level it that's the point he's gonna level it everything's in the way i'm gonna level it so it's easy for all of them behold these will come from afar and there's the picture here and lo, they will come from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinan. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on the afflicted. And here's the picture. That now the, the message has gone out and God is parading people in from every corner of the earth. That's the way it's pictured here. And bringing them into his own sheepfold they're parading in so that there was a day a trust for you when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ and you committed your life into his hands when you recognized your need to actually be cleansed from the guilt of your sin and you not only recognized that but you recognized that you had to be born again you needed a new life and you came to him and trusted to him. And then when that takes place, he does it. And that's, that's what the assurance is here. 
that it's not technical, that the salvation is not technical. It's not just I am technically a Christian because I believe this or believe that. I have been changed. You have been changed. A person's been changed. And they now begin to be set free. They are freed from fearful things. They are freed, freed from want. They are freed from shame. They are freed in all these ways. And they begin to parade in. What a picture. It's the way Isaiah does things. You're going to be the one who glorifies me. So when you face, when it looks like nothing's going the right way, trust me. Just trust me. You are going to be a light to the nations. When it looks like that light has been completely rejected and everybody is turning their back on you, know that in the end, a will turn. That in the end, you will be exalted. You're going to become the covenant to the peoples. That's going to be costly. But know this, that when that's completed, they will come in. It's assured. I think that has a lot to do with the thought that's in the book of Hebrews. Who, when speaking about the Lord, who for the joy that was set before him. What joy? The assurance. It's not going to fail. It is not going to fail. Because the one who called me is going to strengthen me. And the one who called me is going to see it through. And the one who called us is going to bring all the rest to pass. Now, that's who the Lord is. And that's who his father is to him. I want you to note that too. That's what he was, but that's who, what the Father is to him. And again, I just want to encourage you with regards to this, make application in this direction. You have the Word of God. There's a lot out ahead of you. Assuming we keep living, there are a lot of things out ahead. How about this one? The Lord's already gone before you into every circumstance. He knows everything that's going to happen to you, and He knows everything that's going to happen to me right now to the end of my experience. And he wants me to be fully prepared just like the Lord was fully prepared so that he could take the steps that were necessary so that when the issue of the cross comes up, he is not going, whoa, what's going on here? I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for all. He was ready. Why was he ready? Because he let the Spirit of God teach him how to live from the Word of God. I can't encourage you too much on this. You need, particularly in this day, to be in the Word of God on a continuous basis, just like the Lord was in the Word on a continuous basis. Not hunting for what God wants you, just listening, just listening. And you need to be in that Word asking the Spirit of God to tell you what it says. Just ask Him to tell you what it says. Because today he might be preparing you for way down the road. The Lord must have known a long time before he got there that that's who he was and that's what he needed to do. Because it was in the Word of God. It's, it's a tremendous gift that God's given us here. And I want to say one of our sad, sad habits is letting it slide. And then we get into a difficult place. Then we start hunting for what we're supposed to be. We haven't let the Spirit of God take that word and form it in our lives and reform us and and let the life of Christ so permeate our experience so that when we get to that particular difficult situation, we know what to do. It's not to say that the difficult situation becomes easy. The cross was not easy for the Lord. 
Gethsemane was not an easy moment, but he did know what to do, and he knew how to trust. And he put himself in the hands of his father. It's a tremendous passage. He's the servant who glorified God. He is the servant which is light to the nations. He is the servant which on our behalf became a covenant before God. Wonderful person. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks again for your love for us, your love for your son. In considering his life and giving him all the understanding he needed to face it. We thank you for what you have planned for us. Keep us by your spirit in your word. Teach it to us. Form our thinking around it. Prepare us to glorify your name on this earth. We come and trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.